Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Latest Shani Podcast. This is your co-host, Stephen Spector. And with me, uh, too long, Rob, is uh, Rob Hirschfeld. And, and we've been struggling to get people, but I am very excited. We have a great guest today. And I think the COVID, uh, f- COVID flu, Rob, is the word to use, that no one wants to do podcasts because uh, everyone's burnt out. I, I, we've been having great guests on the 2030. So yeah. while, I- w- while the podcast with you know, these sort of one-on-one topics, which are awesome, um, have been, you know, we have, we have been moving slower there. The depth of conversation we're having as a group in both the DevOps lunch and the Thursday 2030 um, just blows me away. I, those, those things just, re- we should just release them as the, as well, the, the DevOps lunches are going every podcast. We've done 10 of them. They go out every Wednesday. So those are still being pushed out. So um, these are, you know, podcasts like we have today will be a Saturday podcast. So uh, all very good. Well, let me go ahead and Rob and introduce our guest. I'm very excited. He's in, he's out in Denmark, which gives us our global reach again. And, uh, and we have Thomas Vitale and hopefully Thomas, I said your name correct. And uh, he is a senior system engineer at Systematic and he's also an author of, he's also an author of a book called Cloud Native Spring in Action. And I was teasing him already that there's no animal on the book as we all, every time we think technology books, there's an animal. So um, it, it looks like it's kind of almost like a woman's suffrage kind of picture, but we can talk more about that later. And, and Thomas, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. And uh, thanks for uh, having me as a guest. So, Thomas, go ahead and just give us kind of a quick background um, of yourself so everyone gets a feel for uh, your history, and then we can jump in talking uh, Java and Spring. It's been a long time since I've heard those terms. Uh, Yes, I work in uh, Systematic, a Danish company uh, in the healthcare department. So I work with uh, applications that are used every day to uh, take care of citizens, elderly people, and people with disabilities. We have a wide variety of uh, different applications, both web applications and mobile applications. And uh, my focus in this uh, last few years has been on uh, the security aspects and most recently about uh, transforming our system to uh, a more cloud native uh, uh, setting. So uh, starting with uh, changing the approach on, of how we uh, develop our applications uh, up to how we deploy them in production. And how long have you been working with Java? Uh, for more than five years. It's the language that I've been working on uh, the most. Excellent. It's interesting with all the Rust and Go and, and JavaScript, which is not Java, um, you know, people forget just how foundational Java is to applications and it, and it really does have a, a tremendous presence. Um, I, it's worth, so back in, back in the, boy, going back at least 15 years now, we had this, these big wars with Java platforms and frameworks, and you had these, po, what they call POJO, plain old Java objects, that framed out, you know, sort of this pulled the language back from a simplicity perspective. Spring showed up and really revolutionized how the language is used. Um, can you, for listeners who aren't familiar with, with Spring and how foundational it is to the way we use Java today, can you, can you explain Spring in, in simple terms? The Spring was really important in the Java ecosystem because back then we, we were using 
very complex components in uh, the J2EE framework. And uh, starting with uh, the dependency injection, Spring really revolutionized the, the Java ecosystem. And starting from there, uh, more frameworks uh, evolved and uh, adopted the same patterns. And uh, nowadays we have really a wide variety of frameworks and micro frameworks that make Java uh, still relevant, still uh, modern, and uh, thinking about the future, even if it's, a, it's an old language. Well, to me, it really decoupled the way you built programs, because all of a sudden you could, build, you could take classes without J2E, which was huge and heavyweight and almost crushed Java. Um, you, you actually could start using classes in ways that let you connect them together without having to sort of build this very tightly wired program. It's in almost microservices at the code level, right? Is that a sort of fair statement? Yes, with very uh, loose coupled classes without too much dependencies on, uh, on the framework itself, like extending classes or having uh, too much framework uh, elements in your class that just make it dirty and uh, bloated and focus on uh, business logic and bringing value to your business and to your customers. Yes. Right. And that, I mean, what I remember is with when Cloud Foundry was on the up and up, was, was on the coming up phase of its life cycle as an independent project before it merged, really merged into Kubernetes. Um, Spring was essential to how uh, Cloud Foundry worked. It, right? Cloud Foundry wouldn't have existed without Spring. As a, as a component, right? Cloud Foundry really uh, revolutionized the way to uh, deploy applications, uh, simple Java applications without having to uh, build uh, the whole infrastructure by yourself. And with Spring was, uh, was really easy. When, when, Spring, when Spring came in, um, that's when, when I, I didn't really, I'd, I'd used Spring um, way back when I was doing Java work. And it took me a little while to understand the connection between Cloud Foundry and Spring, uh, because it, it, right, it, it wasn't intuitively obvious um, until I, I really started listening to the, the Cloud Foundry people. And so I'm, I'm very interested to hear now, because Cloud Foundry has really embraced Kubernetes. Um, and I, I, this isn't intended to be a Cloud Foundry talk. I really want to get into Spring, but I think it's important for people to understand how Spring fits into the architectural patterns for something like Kubernetes. So could you explain the, the architecture a little bit of, you know, when somebody's building an application that they want to run in Kubernetes, how does Spring help them and, and what should they think about? Yes, no, nowadays we have uh, a lot of tools at our disposal to build cloud native applications. And we have two uh, main options that we can choose the, the Kubernetes way and uh, the platform way, meaning a platform as a service like uh, Cloud Foundry or uh, Heroku, that were the two main platforms to uh, deploy very easily cloud native applications. And it's from uh, Heroku that we got the 12 uh, factor uh, application methodology, yeah. for example, with uh, uh, distilled uh, best practices to build cloud native applications coming from years of experience doing that uh, through uh, their platform. Yes, Glad you brought that up because we have a, we the the Kubernetes is so dominated the landscape that 
people would think that it's um, everything was invented for Kubernetes, but it's really the shoulders of giants in this case. So, sorry, 12 factors, Java, containers. So how do, how do you, you pull all these things together? Uh, the starting point for sure is a, a Java application and with Spring we we would have a Spring Boot application and then we can go the container way and uh, be responsible ourselves for containerize it and deploy it on Kubernetes working at the container level or we could go uh, higher in the ar architecture and have a more abstracted uh, view on the underlying infrastructure and let the platform like Cloud Foundry or Heroku do the work for us, providing a, a jar file, for example, for a Spring Boot application and let Cloud Foundry containerize it and providing all the middleware that you need to run that application. And it's really two different ways of uh, sharing responsibilities or assigning responsibilities between uh, uh, an organization and uh, the cloud provider. And I think today they are both valid, but the trend is that uh, we are building platforms now on top of Kubernetes. So have Kubernetes as has been defined, the operating system of the cloud. So have Kubernetes based infrastructure and then have platforms on top of it to provide a, a, a better user experience to developers as provided by platforms like Cloud Foundry or Heroku. Makes sense. Okay, so I guess, uh, can you distinguish between Spring Boot and Spring? Is that like, so, because I'm thinking about Kubernetes as a platform, but I don't think of Kubernetes as doing a lot to make it, you know, if, if I'm using Spring Boot in a container, does, does it even matter if I'm using Kubernetes or a different container platform? That, that's the great aspect of uh, containers and one of the reasons why they became so popular because by containerizing uh, applications, it doesn't matter what is inside, but we can apply the same patterns, the same tools to manage any application independently from the language that is being built with. From the Kubernetes point of view, there's containers inside pods and through Kubernetes, we can uh, manage basically any kind of application. We, we don't, care about the, the language inside. It's, uh, it's the same approach, it's a standardized approach throughout different languages and frameworks. And that, that is really powerful. Then that makes sense. What about the opposite though? So if I'm building a Java application using Spring, so that makes it easy, you know, how, how does using Spring for Java make it easier to operate in a Kubernetes environment? Because I, I don't think you get that much from Kubernetes inside the container, do you? Um, so uh, Spring Boot uh, lets developers uh, package the application as an executable jar. And that was one of the great uh, features when Spring Boot was first introduced. So instead of having a WAR file that then you deploy to an application server, you have just one jar file that you can run as a as any Java applications. So there's no external dependencies. You don't yeah. require a, a machine to have, for example, Tomcat installed on it to make your applications run. And that makes it easy to containerize because it's one single process and it's self-contained. 
On top of that, Spring Boot uh, provides uh, a lot of features that we really like in a cloud native applications like externalized configuration. We can provide uh, properties for configuring the applications as environment variable and uh, in the latest uh, version of Spring Boot 2.4, we have even more uh, features to integrate Spring Boot applications with external configuration services uh, and use config maps and secrets, for example, from Kubernetes. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. So in that case, when when your container starts, you because of Spring Boot, you are able to be aware that you're in a Kubernetes environment and pull in uh, appropriate information for that environment. Yes, exactly. Okay. And to and also leverage the features offered by Kubernetes, like a native service discovery mechanism using service names rather than host names or IP addresses, because of course we want to have uh, many instances of the same applications because we need scalability and we balance the load uh, across them. Oh, so when I'm building an application and uh, I, this sounds like exactly what you described, what, what you're talking through in the book, because this is, this is important things to understand about your environment. I can write my application to be, to leverage information about the, the, the cluster if if i'm if i if i tweak it a little bit to take advantage of the the, the data that's av that's available is that a fair way to say it uh, yes but i think it's also important that it's what uh, spring boot is uh, doing a lot lately is uh, um, let the application integrate well in a kubernetes environment but without too much uh, knowledge or too much uh, overhead to make them integrate nicely because we want to reduce the amount of work that we do and uh, focus on productivity and uh, speed. Makes sense. Is there an so, integration that, that you like was important to you to understand how this, how this worked? There's something that really made it like, ah, okay, that's why I need to use this integration. So I think that for, with Spring Boot, you don't need any specific integration, but in the Spring Cloud ecosystem, there's a project called Spring Cloud Kubernetes that is meant to make easier to migrate from an architecture based on Spring Cloud microservices to use Kubernetes in a more native way. Because before Kubernetes, Spring invested a lot in the Spring Cloud project to provide a lot of features that back then were missing uh, in uh, a developer's uh, toolbox, but that are now provided natively uh, by Kubernetes. For example, service discovery a famous project in the Spring Cloud ecosystem was a uh, uh, Spring Cloud Netflix uh, project uh, with uh, several uh, libraries developed by Netflix and released uh, as open source to take care of aspects like uh, the service discovery, for example, or a uh, uh, circuit breaker. And now those projects have been uh, uh, dismissed. They are in maintenance mode because uh, Kegel, uh, because Kubernetes is uh, more and more uh, uh, used and popular and provided a lot of services uh, uh, natively. So That's we don't need to add too many responsibilities on developers to manage these aspects because it's the underlying platform taking care of that. I, I find that fascinating because, you know, people have been talking about Kubernetes being very complex. Um, and in a lot of cases, needfully complex to handle the type of, of environments it's being pulled into. What you're describing are wrappers 
from the development side that expose Kubernetes benefits to an application in sort of a generic way? Is that, is that, you know, so as a developer, I don't have to worry so much about programming to Kubernetes if I'm using these Spring Cloud libraries? Yes, exactly. Um, the, the goal is to have no knowledge uh, in the, the development code about Kubernetes. And again, the focus uh, is on uh, productivity. So it's important not to uh, require from developers to know too much about uh, how the underlying platform is working. Instead, have a set of APIs or a set of uh, conventions that can be relied upon. It, it sounds like that the, the journey for Spring in this case actually resolves, you know, it, the, these patterns were, were worked out outside of the Kubernetes environment. And then it sounds like they've mapped into Kubernetes and then sort of rebalanced who has, who has to do the, the coding. If, if we're deprecating libraries that were doing that work before and, and saying, well, the platform handles it, I can, I can just deprecate the code and, and have a thinner, thinner wrapper. You get the benefit of the pattern without the code, without having to maintain all the code. That's a big deal. Yeah, and that's a very interesting point about uh, which are the responsibilities of developers uh, in a cloud native setting and we usually talk about a platform team that takes care of managing the platform like a Kubernetes platform and providing the product teams with a set of APIs that they can use to deploy their applications. And some of the responsibilities that used to be in the product team are now moved to the platform team. And another way to look at this is considering, for example, functions we increase the abstraction level and with the OS Lambda, for example, or Google functions, we are responsible of just writing the function with the business logic that we want to execute. And then is the cloud provider taking care of uh, setting up a server that then can uh, run that function. It's really interesting to see how these responsibilities moved around different uh, uh, different people and different teams when we, we move up and down this uh, infrastructure stack. It's interesting you bring up functions because in some ways I, I think of the Spring platform as almost letting the developer, the Java developer write a function and then you've got Spring as this framework all around it. Um, it it's, almost, it's almost functions, it's, you know, creates services around your functions inside a Java framework. Um, does that does that translate into helping you in a functions as a service perspective, or is it just not not as important? Spring provides in uh, in uh, it's a landscape a project called Spring Cloud Function that uh, is meant to uh, bring the power of uh, functions into Spring for uh, deploying them in a serviceless uh, environment. For example, there's uh, uh, integrations with Spring and for example, OS to write a function in Spring and then deploy it as a NOS Lambda uh, in a serviceless uh, platform. Wow, okay. So that creates some code portability for you because the, the 
that that function that you wrote, now you could execute it in a, in a Lambda environment. Does that improve portability? Like, can I can I then take that function, use it in my Spring framework, use it in, um, you know, sort of make it cloud service portable or function as a service portable? Well, uh, I think that's a very good point because one of the problems with functions is that you might risk the vendor lock-in problem. For example, mm -hmm. if you natively work with OS Lambda, you know that your code will not work, for example, with Google, Google functions. So in a way, having this wrapper around uh, Spring functions might help, but uh, it's also true that uh, there's uh, projects under development to overcome that issue. For example, Knative built on top of uh, Kubernetes I think it's a very interesting project that might uh, help with uh, avoid vendor lock-in and provide some uh, uh, more standard uh, interfaces to work with the uh, functions. Yeah, but uh, a, yeah, a benefit of working uh, with Spring on functions is uh, that if you already know Spring, you're very skilled with Spring uh, in your organization, in your team, uh, you don't have to learn something new. I think that that is uh, an important point in general when uh, doing this cloud native transformation that some skills might be new and that's one of the costs to consider. It's true that you can optimize cost of uh, running machines only when you need them, but it's also true that you have some hidden costs that sometimes are not considered about uh, educating people and uh, getting the new skills required to work with cloud native applications and the cloud native platform. What's, was there a barrier you see for, if, say you, you weren't starting with fresh code, but you had existing code. Um, Spring's been around long enough, I would assume most existing code, not most, but a lot of existing code is already using Spring. What does somebody need to keep in mind if they're going to take an existing body of code and then try to move it into a cloud native environment? That's one of the aspects that I consider a lot uh, in my book because uh, uh, of course Spring has been out there for years. It's, uh, it's uh, I guess, the, the most used uh, framework in the Java ecosystem. So there's a lot of uh, legacy uh, in uh, existing enterprise applications. And one of the goals that I have with uh, my book is to help doing this migration from uh, uh, tr more traditional Spring applications to uh, cloud-native Spring Boot applications. And that can be done and Spring makes it uh, easier. And uh, the first step, if uh, an application is not using already Spring Boot, is uh, actually migrating to Spring Boot. I think that's, that's step one. And from there, then we can consider all those uh, aspects that characterize cloud native application like externalized configuration that I mentioned before, for example. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I mean, Spring is a really natural migration. It really creates good decoupling. So if you're, if you have, if somebody has a Java app that's not using Spring, then they, they definitely should, that, that would be a good starting point. Um, and one, if they are using Spring, though, it, it, you're making it sound like it's a pretty natural migration to then containerize and let Kubernetes run that application. It's, is there, are there gotchas people should watch out for? 
like there um, are bad patterns yeah. that that have crept in that don't work in in containers. Yeah, I think the first thing is that uh, this migration can be done in steps, so uh, it can be overwhelming. Like looking at a legacy application and thinking about, okay, now what do I do? So it can be done in step by step. And I think for uh, standard web applications that are deployed, for example, on Tomcat or uh, Undertow, a natural uh, first step is to move to Spring Boot and use an embedded web server. So moving from having an external web server mm -hmm. to use an embedded one and move the packaging from war to jar. I think that that should be step one. And step two, I think, configuration is uh, is very important in a cloud native environment to do configuration right that makes sense so, do you find that that people also need to learn pipelining like is are one of the things that you would advocate for is to build a ci pipeline to to create the containers is that something that you see people struggling with or is that a natural uh consequence of of this migration Yes, uh, I think the containerization uh, comes later uh, or comes in parallel. It's, uh, it's uh, perfectly fine to have a cloud native application without a container. So if the goal is to deploy it on uh, a platform like Cloud Foundry, for example, then the containerization is not uh, uh, our concern. But if we go that way, then of course that should built in in the deployment pipeline to build the container and uh, publish the container to a, a Docker registry. And from there, deploy it to a, a test environment and finally to production. It's it's funny, I've been doing containerized work for a long time. So I, I guess I, I sort of take that skill set um, for granted. Do you find that people who are in Java you know, need to Build a you know so some Docker skills as part of as part of this learning curve, or are they they showing up like oh I know how to use Docker this is just packaging. I think that more than ha having to be familiar with Docker, that that's that's important at least some basics. I think it's important to change the way we think about uh, patterns that we are used to adopt every day and that in a cloud native environment change. For example, logging. I know that like mm. when uh, moving to a cloud native application inside the container, then logging that used to be done on files, then suddenly it's uh, just to the standard output. And we have a platform uh, with services like FluentD collecting and aggregating logs from different containers. That that's that's different because the the first question that one might ask is okay now we have a container where is the log file I need to check the logs and you will not find the log file probably <laughs> I've been doing this for a long time and I still can't answer that question well yeah I I agree with you um, so so in the book do you then break these things down so because you know I hadn't even thought about logging as a component of can, you know, this cloud native migration, but it, you're right. It's essential for somebody to understand that they, you know, where the logging's going and then build strategies in. Um, yes. I think more than uh, before being a 
technological migration, I think it's uh, a cultural migration because many things that uh, we used to take for granted uh, are now different and logging is one example, but also configuration that maybe used to be done with uh, replacing maybe values in a file manually and uh, move those files around different servers. Now changing to an externalized configuration uh, uh, technique is uh, of course uh, different and takes some time to, to get used to it and to do it right. It's, it's interesting to me because what we've been describing here is Spring has been around for a while, but, you know, I really had underestimated until talking to you just how many environmental impacts you really have to consider when you're migrating into this cloud native environment. So is there, is there one, like we've been talking about configuration, we've been talking about some of the cluster service logging. Is there, there one other thing that, that jumps to mind that people should be thinking about? So one thing that is different and uh, is different not only for developers, but also for operators, I think it's uh, about monitoring because I've seen uh, more traditional applications being deployed on uh, web servers and then having specific uh, uh, applications like Jolokia deployed onto these servers with the sole purpose of uh, uh, getting metrics from the application that was running on that server. And now suddenly it's different and Spring Boot with the actuator component provides you all of that already for free, I would say. So you can get uh, Prometheus metrics, uh, health uh, check endpoints, informational endpoints. So uh, it, it's really great. You get all of all these services by Spring Boot. You don't uh, have to code all of that from scratch, but of course things change because like I mentioned Prometheus, Prometheus is something different that with traditional applications we didn't use. There were other tools and uh, other practices. So, so Thomas, I'm gonna jump in here as we get close to wrapping up. I just wanted to highlight your book, uh, Cloud Native Spring in Action. Um, can you just kind of give a quick overview of the book and, and for our listeners if they're interested uh, what the book is what the book will help them with the, the book uh, brings the reader uh, in a journey from uh, uh, an editor working with spring applications up to kubernetes in production so along the the journey uh, the reader will learn uh, different techniques starting from the 12 factor uh, app methodology up to uh, all those properties that characterize cloud native applications like scalability and uh, loose coupling, observability, maintainability. And by doing this, I will, uh, um, my aim is to provide real world examples. So no demo contents, no, no random examples, but as much as possible, I'd like to show to the reader how things are done in production. So for example, security will be covered. So we'll not assume that uh, something then needs to be changed to actually use it in production, but I'd really like to, to show how to do it and actually do it with the reader together and deploying something in production 
on a real Kubernetes cluster, the applications that uh, the reader will build uh, while reading the books. Fantastic. And now, Thomas, we have some uh, codes that we will be uh, pushing out. Uh, but for our listeners, uh, if you don't want to look it up, I have it here. To get a 40% discount on your book, which is pretty good, uh, I'm going to do this because they use our podcast in it, which is going to get people uh, confused. So if you hear this and you go, what was that? You can go to our Twitter account. It's P-O-D, capital L, 8, I-S-T, capital S-H, the number 9, Y, and the number two and zero. Rob, I think I think your latest <laughs> shiny confusion has been taking to epic level uh, oh, with the 40% discount. But Thomas, we yeah. are going to help sell your uh, book. And we also have free five uh, ebook codes. And when I push out the tweet uh, for this podcast, you can go on uh, to our Twitter account and just shoot back to our Twitter account and I'll, I'll hand those out. Well, Thomas, uh, we really appreciate you joining us today. I know this Thank was you. Uh, one of your uh, few podcasts you've done. I think you did a great job. Uh, so now you're a professional podcaster. So the next time you can go, oh, I've done this, this old hat. And of course, having Rob uh, with all the great technical questions, I haven't thought about Spring or Java in a long time. So I was quiet today, but uh, really appreciate you uh, joining us. Um, stay safe over in uh, Europe, although uh, it's going to start getting cold for you up in Denmark. And uh, Rob, I, I think you have a hurricane coming into Texas. So I am, Beta, yeah. I am it's just already, glad. It's already, it's already here. I'm getting some rain from it. I am glad I don't live near hurricanes in Florida or Texas. So uh, to our listeners, thank you for uh, joining us today. And Thomas, uh, do stay in touch if you want to talk more on the technology or anything else in the future. You know, you can always reach out to us and the latest shiny will be happy to uh, bring you on. Thanks again uh, to both of you guys today for the podcast. Thank Steven. you. Thanks, Thomas.